why are we climbing this mountain? Now, I've heard that question a time or two from the children closest to me in my life. Thanks to the generosity of this congregation and a grant from the Lilly Foundation that made possible a sabbatical this summer, I've now had the chance to hear that exasperated question in multiple countries. I heard it most recently yesterday, though, right here in our native state amidst a moderate trail in the high country. Why are we climbing this mountain? Somehow the promise of a waterfall or a sweeping summit view or a bribery powerade at the end, none of that seems to mean that much to my kids. Why are we climbing? Of course, they're not the only ones to ask this. People go up mountains for all kinds of reasons. For some, it's the challenge. Finding a new or faster way to reach the heights of Everest or to scale the nose of El Capitan. I think this is what intrigues our own teenage mountaineer, Berkeley Willis, who says, I have to find creative solutions to hard routes, and I have to push past a mental barrier to try harder stuff. There's a problem to be solved, a risk to be taken, a rush of adrenaline along the way. Though for some, climbing is more about the solitude. It gets you beyond the range of the Wi-Fi and the cell service. You can walk a route that, is, that gives you that experience of unusual quiet, like Bill Bryson has described in his classic trail memoir, A Walk in the Woods. Writing of the Appalachian Trail, he says, you have no engagements, commitments, obligations, or duties. You exist in a tranquil tedium, serenely beyond the reach of annoyance and exasperation. All that there is, is to trudge. Though for some... It's the meaning of it all, like the climber Hans Zijun, who abandoned a successful career as a sales manager for a Fortune 500 company to become a mountain climber. I love the mountain, she says, not because of its supreme height, but because I can feel how my life is entwined with it. Why are we climbing? Is it the risk, the reward, the meaning? The solitude, the detachment, well, there's no final or definitive answer, of course. Though the British climber George Mallory once gave the most famous response to this question. In the New York Times interview in 1923, why climb a mountain, it was asked, and he said simply, well, because it's there. This morning, we read that portion of the Gospel of Matthew that begins, Jesus went up a mountain. But Jesus did so for different reasons than most. Most obviously, he went up the mountain to preach and to teach. As this begins, his Sermon on the Mount, and he stays there all throughout chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has issued the compelling call to the disciples to follow after him. They have joined him in his work. He's just been throughout Galilee. The end of chapter 4 describes it, that he's teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, curing every disease and every sickness among all of those people. And now the great crowds have followed him, no doubt because of what he has already done, but also because of what they anticipate he will now say. Perhaps this one who has worked so many wonders will answer with his words that deep probing question at the center of their lives, the one that they walk all around and climb all about seeking to understand and interpret. That is, what is the purpose 
of this life? Why are we doing it? What does it all mean? In the words of the poet Wendell Berry, what are people for? And so Jesus goes up the mountain to answer that, and he's not the first to do so. With his own questions and those of his people confronting him, Moses had climbed up Mount Sinai, and Jesus and Moses, you might have noticed, they have similar stories, and Matthew, among the Gospels, seems to emphasize this. In both cases, Israel is suffering under an oppressive ruler. In both cases, the lives of these chosen ones are threatened, and their families have to usher them to safety. Both of them emerge out of Egypt. Both wander in the wilderness, and they learn to rely on God there in new ways. And both eventually come to a moment where they climb up a mountain with the depth of human wondering accompanying them. And from that peak, they will each offer definitive statements about how it is that we are to live. Moses with the commandments that he delivers And Jesus, with the ethical center of his teaching, this Sermon on the Mount. The biblical scholar Eric Barreto has noted how the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, like the Ten Commandments in Exodus, it's not really about rules. It's instead about a vision of wholeness that is rooted in God's liberation of those who are oppressed. And Jesus has surrounded himself with such people. Some of them are among his earliest followers. People who had walked away from a previous purpose, from an earlier life. Fishermen and tax collectors and tradespeople. They knew what their lives were for in specific material ways, but now all of that has shifted. It's been interrupted with his call. And in his earliest words to them, Jesus begins to describe for them God's own agenda for the world and God's purposes for their life, God's hopes and dreams and expectations for them and for all of God's children. And notice that the very first words Jesus offers them, the first words that the gospel records from this Jesus' definitive sermon, they are words of blessing. He began, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, blessed. But the translation blessed, it's a little bit soft and sentimental, especially when we pronounce it with that fanciful accent on the second syllable, blessed. The Greek word is sometimes translated as honored or favored. Some translations use the word happy, with Jesus seeming cheerful about these promises. And then the French edition of the New Jerusalem Bible includes a favorite translation of this phrase. Translates the word for blessed as debonair. But I love most of all, I think, the interpretation that comes from the Jesuit priest and the author, Father Gregory Boyle. Boyle is known for his writing and for his gang intervention ministry in Los Angeles. These ministries of compassion that he leads that have become models worldwide. And he suggests that the Beatitudes not be rendered as blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers, the justice seekers, the merciful. But that a more precise translation would be to say, you're in the right place. Father Boyle has described how important this message is in his work with formerly incarcerated individuals, supporting them, working together with them as they seek to redirect their lives. And one such person is a man named Mario who works at the organization that Boyle founded, Homeboy Industries. Mario sells baked goods at the coffee counter on weekday mornings. He's an active part of homeboy industry, so much so 
that when Father Boyle was invited, as he sometimes is, to make a speech at a local college, he thought that Mario should join him and should share some of his story and what this ministry had meant in his life. And so Mario made this presentation to a room of a thousand people. This man that Father Boyle describes as the most tattooed individual I've ever met was standing there clutching the microphone, trembling as he talked about a violent past, a painful period of his life, an attempt to redirect and to change. And then afterward, Father Boyle invited questions from those who had gathered there. And the first question came from a woman who walked up to the auditorium microphone and she said, well, I have a question for Mario. So Mario stood up on stage, terrified, as the woman said, well, Mario, you say you're a father and that your kids are approaching their teenage years. I just wonder, what do you tell your kids? What advice do you give to them? And Mario was searching for the words. I, I just, and he stopped and he clutched a microphone stand that was seemingly propping him up at this point. Still, he wanted to get the words out and so he finally was able to stammer out, I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me. And Father Boyle says there was total science, silence until this woman who asked the question, she stood back up and she was tearful as she said, why? Why wouldn't you want your kids to be like you? It's clear that you are loving. You are kind. You are gentle. You are wise. I hope your kids turn out to be like you. And in that instant, a thousand people stood up and they would not stop clapping. And Mario held his head in his hands and he was weeping because a room full of people had seen him. They had helped him to then see himself and they had helped him to understand himself with blessing. Imagine that scene in Galilee to all of those mourning and meek on the hillside. Those who have come from far away from this seeming possibility they imagine in a life with Christ. All those feeling displaced or forgotten or like they're in the wrong place altogether. The word rolls back to them. Blessed are you. See, Jesus looked out and he knew who they were. He knew that they were people who needed to hear a sermon like that. A word of blessing before all else. In 1993, I visited Israel with my father and a tour group from my home church and we went to one of the traditional settings for Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There's a church there. It's named the Church of the Beatitudes. An open countryside slopes down from the hill on that church, and it's all wide open, and it's expansive, and the layout is such that you can see a lot on a clear day. The biblical scholar Matt Skinner has pointed out that from atop that mountain where he preached, Jesus could also see. Jesus could see for a great distance. He could see other villages. He could see the trade that was occurring within his range of view. He could perhaps look across and see Tiberias being built, which is being built then to tax Galilee to make the lives of these people even more challenging. And most of all, on that clear day, Jesus could see all of those gathered there. Because Jesus didn't climb for the challenge or the height. He didn't climb for the solitude or the quiet. 
He didn't climb up there primarily for the meaning or to tie himself to some wider biblical theology. And he didn't even go up the mountain only to preach and be heard. He climbed up there to see. He saw the crowds, Matthew says. He looked and he saw all of them coming out to him. And so he invites us to join him on the mountain, but it's not let's climb up here where we can have some perfect vision. And it's not come with me as we ascend to a greatness that only we can attain. And it's not come away with me, here we can detach and find solitude and quiet and peace. No, it's let's go up to that spot where we can see everybody coming. Where we can see all the sick, those who are afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, the text says. See the great crowds following him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan, Matthew tells us. And all of those poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful. People who hunger after integrity and thirst after justice. People who reach across barriers and do the hard work of making peace. And so maybe in these Beatitudes, Jesus is not primarily giving challenges or instructions on how to live No, instead, he's describing what he can already see. He's giving language for what people have already experienced. He's not issuing instructions so much as he's interpreting what is within his view. He's assuring all of those meek and poor and overlooked that they are seen in this new kingdom that he envisions coming near to them. Jesus climbed up that mountain, and in some ways, he never came down. And can't you imagine that He is still there? That He's still looking? That He's still seeing? And how we need to know that in our world. We are grieving deeply and achingly collectively today the death of Tyree Nichols following the brutal abuse of five police officers in Memphis. And it's so important to acknowledge the trauma that this raises for black people and for people of color in this country. It is so important for Christian people to do in this moment what God in Christ does. Because can't you imagine Jesus from where He stands glimpsing people oppressed, glimpsing mothers frightened, glimpsing communities traumatized once again. And all you who mourn, I see you. And when we join our voices, when we cry out for the kind of justice that can make a difference in this world, when we demand a world as it ought to be, when we refuse to accept injustice as inevitable, well, can't you imagine Jesus viewing it? All you who hunger and thirst after righteousness, I see you. And when we examine our own lives and we discover where we are vulnerable or fragile or broken, when we feel that things are not everything we planned them to be, when I was standing last Sunday afternoon at the wedding for Danielle and Eric Legree, right there with witnesses gathered in Danielle's parents' home, gathered in the living room because her stepfather, Hugh, is in the last days of his terrible battle with ALS. And if any are here 
who would give blessing to this marriage, would you please indicate by saying, I will, or by giving a thumbs up? And can't you imagine that Jesus gets to where his view is unobstructed and says, all you who feel meek, all you who are far from mercy, I see you. And when anyone feels overlooked, or when anyone has been taught so painfully what it means to feel impoverished in spirit, or to be battling poverty in real material ways, don't you know that Jesus says, all you who are poor, I see you. This morning we pour out into that open countryside and we discover that Jesus is still up there. We remember that he climbed that mountain and he never left it. And we hear again these words that tell us that we are seen. That there's someone that says to us, blessed are you, and not in some future, not in some distant ideal, but here and now. And maybe that can help us all to see. Help us all to take the long view with Jesus from the mount, to see this world as He sees it, to love it as He loves it, to look out and see the crowds, the people, and even more, to see the kingdom that can come to earth as it is in heaven. This summer we hiked up a hill outside the city of Florence. And my kids were in the midst of their questions and reluctance. Dad, I am tired of walking up these hills to look at views. And so I broke off from the group, maybe to find a little solitude. It was just me and my closest travel partner, B, who was perched on my shoulders. And we trudged ahead quickly. We made it to the top. We came to this clearing, and the city was below. And wow, B said, you can really see everything from up here. And may it be so. Amen.